Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. I pulled into Nazareth. I was a feeling by half past day. I just need to find a place where I can lay my head. Hey, mister, can you tell me where a man might find a bed? He just grinned and shook my hand. The no was all he said. At age 15, Robbie Robertson wrote his first two recorded songs. A year later, he packed up his guitar and took a train from Canada to the Mississippi Delta, what he calls the holy land of rock and roll. By the mid-1960s, he'd be touring the world with Bob Dylan, then taking center stage with a group of his own, aptly named The Band. Operating out of a basement in upstate New York, he penned classics like The Weight, still considered a masterpiece today. A blend of country and rock and roll, the band's music transcended generations, pushed boundaries, and changed the face of music forever. In his new memoir, Testimony, Robbie Robertson travels back to the place it all began, the Six Nations Indian Reservation where his mother, a Mohawk, was raised. That's where I was introduced to music. It seemed to me that everybody played an instrument, sang, danced, did something, because there wasn't much entertainment coming through the res, so they had to make their own. And it, w- and it felt like a club. And I thought, I got to get into this club. Everybody plays something. How much time did you spend there? Oh, well, we, we spent lots of time there because that's where, you know, all my mom's relatives were. Mm-hmm. So we would go several times a year. and That was your mother's side of the family, so to oh, speak. Oh, yeah, right. yeah. And, uh, and it felt to me like I was, I was, that they allowed me into this world that I thought was so special. So all of these things in music, and it was the first time I ever saw anybody playing an instrument a few inches from me, and the sound of it from that place that I thought, I've got, I've got to learn something about this. So some of my cousins and uncles and everybody, they would show me a few little tricks on the guitar, a couple of chords, and over time, I liked it and liked it. And then when I was about 11 or 12 years old, I thought, I'm getting as good as they are at this. And they're grown-ups. Something's happening here. All of this coming out of the Indian reservation, where it's supposed to be deprived, it was a glorious part of my growing up. So then when I was 13 years old, I was standing there at the crossroads with a guitar. Rock and roll came along, and I just reached puberty. It was a setup. I had nowhere else to go. I had to follow this path. And so it it was like it was laid out before me, and all I had to do was follow it. So I started getting into little groups and things. I had a group called Robbie and the Robots, and I, you know, we had another group called Thumper and the Trambones, and then this is the high school bands. Yeah, 
And then I play. I had a group, and we opened for Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks at a dance hall. And they were amazing. They were all from the South, and it was pure... It was pure rockabilly, hard-hitting rockabilly. The American South. Oh, yeah. And not South Toronto. Yeah. No, okay. it was from the South. So yeah. for me, it was authentic. Where was Hawkins from? Arkansas. Right. Okay. They were all from Arkansas then. And and in the group I was in, we played, and I tried to play good and everything. And I, and I caught Ronnie Hawkins' eye a little bit. And that it gave me the opportunity to hang around a little bit. I wanted some of this to rub off on me. I wanted to learn this authenticity. But, but, so, but to interject this, which is when you're there and you're at the reservation and they're, they're playing the music and you start to keep up with them. And then you say, quote, unquote, Ronnie Hawkins has his eye on you. Is that something that you've benefited from, which is people saw that you stood out and they recognized that? They almost mentored you. You know, there's something that happens. It's, it's, it's mysterious, and you don't know where it comes from, and you don't know how. You just know something happens. And if somebody pats you on the back for that— What was Ronnie Hawkins patting you on the back for? He thought, this kid looks to me like he might have potential— <laughs> Right. And then when I was 15, which was at, at that time, I was 15 years old, I wrote two songs that he recorded. And so that was kind of a big thing, too, the first recordings that I had. And then when I was 16, he said, I want to try you out. I want, you know, I want to see if you can if you can handle it. And so I went from Canada from Toronto on a train down to the Mississippi Delta to the holy land of rock and roll to join up with Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks. And you knew your mom, your dad had passed away? Yeah, my, my, my mother, she was horrified. But I was going to say, what was her reaction? <laughs> 16. Was yeah. And, and, and I'm going to the Mississippi Delta? And describe Ronnie Hawkins for people who don't know him. Was he uh, in a suit and tie? Did he have a bow tie and a crisp shirt on? Or was he, he... He was an amazing character, an incredible showman, so funny, and could get away with anything. And to see him perform, it was like some uncaged animal. It was... <laughs> But beautiful, <laughs> you know, he would come leaping through the air down and land on his knees behind the piano player and start winding him up like as if, you know, it was like a monkey, you know, playing, right. you know, An organ grinder. Yeah, yeah, like the organ grinder. He would be winding him up and then come in singing at the last second and then, you know, leap over here. He was like, and years ago when we played like Alan Freed shows and that, nobody wanted to go on after Ronnie Hawkins. Right. Right. He was just one of those. <laughs> he was the closer. Yeah, he was just an exciting performer. So, and my mother knew of Ronnie Hawkins. I mean, not well, but had met him. But when I said, I'm going down there, I'm going to try out for Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, because uh, if I don't do this, I'll be sorry the rest of my life. And I've got to find out whether this is my calling or not. She said, all right, you can try it. But if it doesn't work, you go right back to school. And I said, it's a deal. Right. But you never had to keep that deal. <laughs> I was on a mission. When Hawkins said, when you wrote a couple songs for him and he was going to you know, use those songs before you got in the band, 
describe for me, because you are a very, uh, you know, uh, famous for your songwriting as well as your performing, what was that like for you? I mean, even as a child, I mean, you're a young kid, you're 15. When he said that, I kept looking for the key, the key to the highway. I kept looking for some way to impress him. I wanted into this world. And I thought, he said he needs some songs. I had been writing songs. Not very good ones, but, you know, I was I was doing it. And I thought, let me give it a shot, you know. And I went and I wrote two songs, brought them to him, played them for him. And he said, well, I'll be damned. I'm going to re- record both those songs, son. Oh, yeah. Do you remember what the songs were? Yeah, one was called Someone Like You, and another one was called Babalu. And I... Uh, and I just, I wrote them like in one sitting because I was anxious and I was young. But here's the pipper in this. He goes, records these songs, makes a new album, brings me the album. I nervously open this record. I look on the label. There's my name on the label. Wow. But it says Robertson and McGill. So I said... There was no McGill there when I wrote these. Who the hell's McGill? And he said, well, it's a kind of a long story. I don't know if you want to. And I said, no, there was nobody else there. I didn't call. I wrote it. I wrote these. What's going on? So he said, here's the real deal. This is a pseudonym for Morris Levy. My lawyer. He owns the record company. He owns Roulette Records. And he's a hardcore mobster. And he... That's his vig. And that's his vig. Right exactly. The Half the songwriting. And I thought, you can do that? You can lie about this stuff? You can put it out there and nobody ever says anything? And so Ronnie explains, no, no, no. You don't he said, under- forget about it, Robbie. It's Chinatown. <laughs> that's right. It was like that. Right. He said, Morris is famous for having his guys hold somebody out his office window yeah, by yeah, the yeah. ankles yeah. saying, either you yeah. sign this or we let he go. He was a very cuddly character. <laughs> so so after, the, after this songwriting thing, Ronnie brings me to New York. He said, if you can write songs for me, maybe you would have a good ear and hearing songs would be good for me to record. So I meet Lieber and Stoller and Thomas and Schumann and Otis Blackwell, all of these writers, and I sit in rooms and they play me songs, and I think this is kind of like being in heaven. So then Ronnie says to me, now we're going to go up to Roulette Records. We're going to go up to see Morris Levy. Um, I have to, you know, do, do some things with him. So, you know, I'll introduce you and everything. I'm thinking to myself, oh, yeah? Well, now we're going to discuss this songwriting misunderstanding. Yeah. I want a word with you, Morris. <laughs> you know, no, it was kind of like that I was that young that I was thinking, you weren't in the room. You weren't there when I wrote yeah. these songs. You do realize. I want an explanation, Morris. <laughs> right. So anyway, so we go into his, up to his office. It looks like a scene out of a Damon Runyon thing. There are gangster guys standing around with crooked noses and bulging mohair suits, you know, where they're back Pocket in squares. Heat. There's good, There's secretaries with blonde hair over one eye, you know. It's like, <laughs> this is a movie. And we're, <clears throat> and Count Basie is playing in the background. We come in and Morris 
comes out of his office and he says, Ronnie, Ronnie, I love this guy. What a crazy guy he is. Come on in here, Ronnie. You know, and he's saying to everybody there, you know, I love this guy. And I think, what happens to gangsters when they're kids that their voices go like this? Why does he talk? You know, it's funny. So we go into his office. Ronnie's doing the camel walk on the rug and calling him Haas. And and he just, he loves Ronnie. So it's, it's really fun. And Ronnie says to him, Morris, I just came up here just to see if there's any papers you want me to sign, right? <laughs> Knowing the story about hanging people yeah. out the, out the I'm window. I'm to give you a pint of blood. <laughs> right. So anyway, we sit down, and I'm thinking, all right, okay, you know, I see how this is going. And he's talking to, to Morris, and he says, Morris, this is the kid that I was telling you about that I really think has some potential. And Morris looks over at me, and he says... Yeah, he's a nice-looking kid. If you ever have to do time, it'd be good to have him with you. I thought, what? What? He said, I bet you don't know whether to hire him or just have sex with him. You know, and I think... I'm going to forego yeah. the songwriting yeah. dispute. Yeah. I'm just going to let that go for yeah. now. You yeah. know? We're going to a whole other level here. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah. So you leave Hawkins. Yes. And you're with him for how long? A couple of years? Uh, when I, I joined him at 16, left probably around 1920. Right, maybe so you were there Yeah, right. something like that. And you leave to, to form your band? No, it is over the years... Levon and I have helped hire people to replace people that were leaving the Hawks, and they were all Canadians because we were spending a lot of time up there. Ronnie liked it because he made more money and the hours were easier. So we were seeing all these really talented guys, and because I I kind of opened that door a little bit, and we, and we would see this other talent. We'd say, oh, my God, that guy, there's something special about him, that Rick Danko. We better hire him. And then, boy, when this Richard Manuel sings, geez, it just tears your heart out. And Garth Hudson, there's never been a keyboard player on that level ever. And if he was in our group, we would learn more. We would be better. Everybody gets better. Yeah. So anyway, we put together this group, and Ronnie has now an amazing band of music. And we are young and and growing up, and we outgrow what we were doing with Ronnie. And we just said, at some point, we got to go do our own thing. Where did you first meet Levon? I met Levon... Um, when I first, w- when my group opened for Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks, and then... So Levon was with Hawkins already? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he was one of the original Hawks. Got it. Okay. So, and he joined the group, I think, when he was 18 or something like that. Um, but when I went south and Levon introduced me to his family and to everybody there, we, we became very close, just like a brotherhood. And so we were picking out these other guys. And after we put this group together, Levon was then the only Southerner left in the group. And we had these guys, and then we just felt like we have to go out in the world and discover our own thing now. And we did that, and we were out there and playing the Chitlin Circuit down south and joints, you know, in in New York and Jersey, and we were playing at a 
place <clears throat> in Jersey, and uh, and that's when I got this call from uh, Bob Dylan to that he wanted to talk to me about something. And how did he find you? He we had a reputation of being a pretty you know. A good band, a really yeah. good band. There was that, and, and he I, always had his finger in the wind for that kind of thing. He um, he was wanting to make this transition from being the, a folk hero to being a guy that had a band of you know instruments, powerful rock and roll band. He wanted right? to turn it up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So, so I I went and I met with him, and I didn't know what this was going to be about but what the plan really was what they were thinking he needed a, a guitar player and wanted to hire me to play guitar um on some dates he was doing and i said i, I i'm i have a group I, I we don't do that you know i said but maybe for these two dates if we could have levon come too we might be able to slip this in without making the other guys feel left out or so we did these couple of dates it was ridiculous i mean we were playing places and people were so upset about this music and you know this electric music from our folk man and it was like it it, it, was, it wasn't working it 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 was not what they wanted at all from him from him they this was not so well, any, what was the venue we played Forest Hills Stadium here. So you're at Forest Hills, and people literally are like, "When's Bob Dylan coming on?" No, that people were charging the stage and throwing <laughs> things and trying to disrupt it and booing oh. and booing. So we played F Forest Hills and the Hollywood Bowl. Did these dates? We thought, well, that was weird. And then Bob <laughs> says, "We're going to book a whole tour now." Let's do a whole tour. And I was like, no, no, no. Yeah. No, no, we have a group. Yeah. We are a group. We are not going off to do this. And the only way that we could even consider it is we did it with the whole group. So he c came and heard us play and said, yeah, let's do this. And so we ended up touring of North America, Australia, Europe, and people booed and threw stuff at us every night. How is that possible? You could hear people saying to him and his manager, you got to get rid of these guys. Yeah. They're ruining everything. Yeah, it ain't working. The people love you, but you've got to get rid of those guys. <clears throat> and Bob never budged. He never took a step back. And we continued and we did this whole tour and stuff. Back then, we would listen sometimes after the show to a tape of the show just thinking... You know, is what, there something we're missing? <laughs> what's wrong? What do we think that's happening that's not right, happening? Right, right. How can they... Are and, we high? And there was a point in all of that. and Because some of it was just helpful to put get the music better and do this song slower and this one. There, there was one night we're listening to the tape, and I said to the other guys in the Hawks and the Bob, they're wrong. The world is wrong. This is good. This is really powerful, and they are wrong. And there was a boldness that came out of this that we felt like, oh, yeah? Really? I'll show you something. Right, 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 you know, right, right. and it was like, 
get him in the ears, you know, yeah. get him in the eyes. It was an attitude that allowed us to carry on. All of these concerts, are, as we speak, are coming out. They're being released, right. all of them. Right. I don't know. I want to hear the music that the band did with Bob Dylan was booed around the world. Yeah. That I've got to see. <laughs> but none of it's recorded on an album. And the, no, it's all coming out. Right. That it, God knows. But how it wasn't big. released then. It wasn't released right. then. It's being released now. Sure. Yeah. yeah. But eventually it stops, correct? It ends. No. Why? Well, what happened was after we finished the European tour, we came back. And they were booking more dates. They were getting, you know, they, he wanted to do a tour of Russia. He wanted all kinds of things. <laughs> you think, and it was kind of like, you think. He wanted that, to be booed in every corner <laughs> of the world. Hello, Greenland. <laughs> so, so we came back and he had an accident on a motorcycle accident and he fractured his neck. And so they had to cancel any upcoming dates. Right. And he never did another tour after that for eight years. May God bless and keep you away. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. Coming up, why Martin Scorsese risked getting fired from New York, New York to direct the band's final concert in 1976, a film that would become The Last Waltz. To hear other musical legends, explore the Here's the Thing archives. In 1966, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass did the unthinkable. They outsold the Beatles. But that was just the start. In 1967, we were, I was doing a special for NBC. Jack Haley Jr. was uh, directing. He said, why don't you sing a song? I said, well, I, if, I, if I can find the right song, I'll give it a go. So, you know, I go through my Rolodex, and I call Bert Bacharach. I said, Bert, is there a song that you have that you think I could handle, that you have tucked away in your drawer someplace, or you find yourself whistling in the morning, or, you know, a, a, a tune that haunts you? Well, three days later, he sent me This Girl's In Love With You. Take a listen at heresthething.org. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Robbie Robertson and the band shook the foundation of America in the 1960s, weaving together the rustic and romantic into hits like The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down. But if their sound was innovative, their first recording studio was the opposite. It was a house up in West Saugerties, New York. Who found it? Um, Rick Danko. And I, it said, guys, I think I found it. Because we were having a lot of trouble in the city finding a place where we could make music. Why? Because it, it was... the business was still here, then it hadn't all moved to L.A. yet. Right. No, no. It, but, but we'd be disturbing. They'd say, turn on the music in there. You know, it was like, it was hard to find a place. Even a studio? Well, a studio, but we couldn't afford to, to be oh, in a studio. Oh, you couldn't afford to go to Electric so, Lady or something like that. Right. No, no, no. And this was to write and to create and to oh. think of what we're going to do next. So Albert Grossman, our manager, talks us into moving up to Woodstock. He said, you can get a place there. Nobody will bother you. You won't bother anybody. They'll bring you food. <laughs> it'll be, it'll be yeah. just 
because I had this dream that I wanted to have a workshop, a clubhouse, where we all congregate every day, and we go there and we create, and we have a wonderful time together, and we build some kind of a musical noise that we could send out around the world. So we find this place out in the middle of a hundred acres, nobody to bother. It is this horribly ugly pink house. <laughs> what had it been? It was the just farm? a farm. No, it was just a house on on a big property. Was it meadow or was it wooded? It was. Both? It was both. Yeah. Yeah. But it had not been a working farm. Not a farm. Okay. Just a house. But anyway, in this house, it had a basement. And I thought, that's it. It's the that's, clubhouse. That's, the that's clubhouse. what I've been looking for. We can set up our equipment down here, and we can have l some microphones, and we can... Rip it. And we can be way off the grid. We can have nothing to do with what's going on in the world and really discover what we're here for. <clears throat> it served that kind of purpose in my imagination. So we set it up, we got the things, the instruments in there, all organized in a certain way, a few mics, a little mixer and everything. I bring this engineer, recording engineer, friend, sound mixer guy in. I said, look at this. This is what, you know, I said, what do you think? He looks at it and he says, well, it's all concrete, glass windows, a big furnace over here. This is probably going to be the worst sounding place you've ever heard in your life. It's a disaster. Yeah. And I said, it's an acoustic nightmare. And I said, thank you. That's just what I was looking for. Yeah. I want to break I some want a rules. Challenge, yeah. yeah. And you know, where you find the sound, it's like, That's this, right. this is Frampton when he did the show with us. Frampton, who, like you, 16 years old on the road. And uh, um, same thing, he, when you listen to Frampton, he was like, and he was, when I was a kid, I was into sound. He said, all I wanted was just sounds, and what, what kind of sounds I want. And you're fascinated by that. Like, he just yeah. had that, that kind of, uh, 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 you know, savantish thing. So you're up there, and Dylan comes. He lives up there. Right. So one day I say to him, Bob, you got to come and see the setup we got out yeah. here. You got to see this furnace, Bob. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, and I and he's you know, he's just recorded in studios, you know, traditional recording and everything. I'm thinking, I don't know whether, you know, he's going to think I'm crazy and this is meaningless or whatever. So we drive out there and we're driving and driving and then up this side road and we're driving driving. He says, where the hell is this? He said, you're right about nobody bothering <laughs> yeah, you out here, yeah. I can tell you. And we go in and we go into this house and it's it, it, it's hard to put your finger on it. And so like, one of the guys is making some coffees and they got checkerboards set up on these tables and he's looking it over and I said, come on, check this out. And we go down into the basement and he goes, whoa, look at this. Can you, can you record stuff down here? I said, we got a little tape recorder right there. We're going to record stuff, and we're, you know, this is where we are going to experiment and make some discoveries. And how long did that go on? So he said, listen, I've got a couple of songs that I've been messing around with. Maybe we could try them together here. So we said, yeah, sure, we're all set up. What's the problem? So anyway, 
we ended up recording the basement tapes there. I don't know, there's something like 140 songs or something in the course of this. And what we would do is every day we would go to Big Pink, we'd have some coffee, play some checkers. Bob would write. He wrote on a typewriter all the songs. He would just ding, ding, you know, and I'd seen him do that before. It was just, I didn't know people wrote that way, but he did. And so he would type something up. We'd go down into the basement, grab. Everybody would grab whatever instrument was close. Might even not be the one you play. Anything. Because there was no rules. We'd sit down. We'd mess around. Play through a tune. And we'd say, wow, that felt kind of good. We'd listen to it. And then pretty soon, it would turn into a combination of new material that he was writing, that we were writing, and a lot of songs that I, I, I discovered that he had a memory of lyrics that no person in the world could have this. To remember the lyrics to his own songs right. was a phenomenon. Which many don't. Right. And it was a, an amazing time, an amazing, and it was private. And so in the course of that, he was getting songs to send to his publisher because people recorded Bob Dylan songs, right? And they needed some new material. So we would lay down some songs you could send to the publisher, and then we would record songs that nobody should ever hear. It was just private. It yeah. was just between us. The sketches. And some of it was so hilarious, right. brilliantly funny. And we and it was cool because it was just us. We weren't hurting anybody doing this. And then and then the first bootleg record that I ever knew of came out with some of these songs on it. And it was like somebody peeking in in your closet. Yeah. It was like, whoa, wait a minute here. This isn't right, especially on a bootleg record. Now explain to somebody, how does that happen? You record this stuff with never ever any, any intention. Because a lot of people think the bootleg takes are, are leaked by you. No. No, no, no. no, no I'm, I'm, I'm saying you did. But a lot of people think that the, the guys like you and Dylan and, and the band and, and Levon and everybody, you do the leaking because you're like, well, we don't want this stuff to come out. This is very proprietary. My God. If you're up there and again, it's, it's in, you're in a vault in the middle of nowhere and nobody can get to you. How does that material get leaked as your guess? So what was happening was some of the material that was legitimate that other people could cover and a lot of people did. That was sent to the publishing company, and they would... They, and so you they, hand the tapes over to people that you trusted. But only certain things. Right. There was, like I said, a, whatever there was, 140 tracks or something that we had recorded. And so they sent out maybe 15 that was for people to cover. That's what it and was. And that gets leaked. Because people heard these tapes people, and said, oh, my God, yeah. this is amazing, this stuff. So they started sharing it as kind of a cool right. underground yeah, factor. Cool, cool. And then bootleggers came along, and then they put it out and tried to sell it. But we still had all of this tons of other stuff that nobody ever heard. Because a lot of it was covers. A lot of it wasn't for original. that period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. original. So... So now, years later, they release all of it. Because nowadays, it's all out there. Yeah. It's everything. There's no point in sitting on anything anymore. Um, it ends with him how? 
I mean, you're recording uh, 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 Pink House, all that stuff. When does that wind down? It wound down in... um, And why? No, no, it it was because it was time for us to go and record music from Big Pink, the first album by the band. Right. Right? And then Bob went off... So the band had never recorded... We had recorded songs here and there as the Hawks, right? right. But not as the, as the band. But now... As the band's debut album. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What year is that? 67? 68. 68. 67 was the Basement Tapes, and right. 68 was music from Big Pink. Did, did Dylan perform on the, uh, on the, on the, the no, band he, album? No, he no. painted the cover. He did a painting for the cover. And then he went off to make another record in Nashville, and we went off to do our thing. And then the band became recognized as the band. And and then a few years later, we did a tour together, the Bob Dylan, the band tour in 1974. And he hadn't done a tour until then. So when you go from uh, Hawkins to the to the uh, basement tapes, and then on to do your own album. Does the personnel change, or it's the same unit that becomes the band? It never changes. Never changes. Yeah. And you, when, when you roll right up into Last Waltz, it's the same guys. Yeah. Same keyboard, same yep. everything. Everything. And when you do Last Waltz, and the, so the story goes that you pitched Marty. Yeah, I was trying to figure out who, because th- this thing kept growing, the idea of it, and it became, it was becoming a real musical celebration with all of these people coming together. Your friends. Yeah. You knew up front this was a farewell show? Was this, was this, show, this was it. This, this, we were going to bring all of this to a conclusion. The band had been together for 16 years, and we had seen it all. Up and down that highway. We had been to the grungiest places. We played Jack Ruby's Club in Fort Worth, Texas, right? Just before he assassinated Oswald. And we had played Woodstock and Watkins Glen, the biggest concert in the world, and the Isle of Wight. We had done everything that you could do under the sun. And during that period, too, in the 70s, in 1976, it became very dark out there. There was a lot of drug abuse. There was a lot of madness. It was kind of just crazy in the air. And what we were trying to do is think, how do we survive this? So why don't we bring this episode to a conclusion, and then we can get out of the spotlight and figure out creatively what comes next for us? That's what the plan was. For us or individually? Individually and, and yeah. for us so together. So there was no, I mean, I, I don't want to pry, but there was no acrimony. There was no, no, everybody, no, no. Just, everybody collectively said, it's time for a change. Yeah. We're all going to go do our own thing. And, and what a thing. beautiful way to do it in, yeah. this, in this celebration of music. Yeah. But in the name of music, in the name of the band, and respect for one another, and all of these people that brought different flavors of the music, you know, out for us. Dr. John from the New Orleans Sound, Muddy Waters from the Chicago Blues, and Eric Clapton from the British Blues, and the Canadians, Neil Young, and Joni Mitchell. So all of this as it's growing, then certain people were saying, God, you got to document this somehow. This is one of those things is, you know, something like this may never happen again. 
So it starts out, we're going to have a couple of video cameras, black and white. Then they say, well, that's not going to look very good. Why don't we do it in 16 millimeter, like all of these music... uh, Let it be, everything. Yeah, everything, 16. And as it's growing, and me being a movie bug, I started thinking, who would be terrific to do this? Hal Ashby... And, Good call. Uh, and George Lucas, you know, with Amer- American Graffiti. Right. And I'm going down the list, and I feel bold, like I could ask anybody, yeah. you know, to do this. But there was one guy that I saw something in his instincts for music and movies that was different than everybody else. There was something so powerful about this that I couldn't let it go. So when I started to make a list of these directors that I was going to ask, I wrote down Martin Scorsese. And I thought, let me talk to him first. The music in Mean Streets was something really special about this. And and on and on and on in his movies. So I met up with him, and I asked him if he would be interested in, in directing this. And he said, all of these people, these are all my favorites. Oh, my God. It was meant to be. He said, but... I'm in the middle of shooting a movie, and they don't like it when you go and make another movie while you're shooting yeah. a movie. Yeah, Moonlight. What movie was he shooting at the time? New York, New York. New York, New York. So he said, you know, I, you know, I, 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 I don't know how to do this. And so we hung out that evening, and we talked about it, and we talked about, you know, Eric Clapton's going to be coming, and we're, you know, all of these musical ideas that we, that we have. And finally, he says, the hell with it. They can fire me. They can crucify me. I don't care. I have to do this. I ha- we have to find a way for me to do this. So we had to put this together underground, and nobody could know that Martin Scorsese was going to direct you know, yeah. capturing this. It was this. a top secret project. It really was. It was completely underground. And recorded over what period of time? Four days? No. Take one. Take one. We recorded. And so then through these cinematographers, Lazlo Kovacs and Vilmo Sigmund, they're saying, we don't want to shoot this in 16 millimeter. We got to shoot it in 35. 35 yeah. You know? It's a movie. Yeah. It's a real making, movie. Yeah, we're making a movie. And so they said, but the problem is that Michael Chapman, the, who be, DP, became the DP. Raging Bull. Yeah. Michael Chapman says, these cameras won't run for the length of this concert. They will melt. They will break. They'll blow up. Yeah. It's, they'll never make it. So we, got, so we had to figure out a system of certain songs out there so they could reload, change batteries. There's no digital happening here. Yeah. This yeah. is real film. And Marty directed this thing on what he wanted to capture in the whole... Co- it wasn't like everybody shooting and we'll see how it cuts together. No, no, no. It was scripted, but take one. So when, when you saw the film... Knowing Marty as I do, you probably saw the film nine years after you finished, because he's cutting for nine years, him and Thelma. But when you saw the film, did it just did it just kill you to see memorialized by Scorsese your great 
bow, you know, your great sign-off with that band. Well, first of all... Very few people have had that moment captured. I know, I know. The Beatles unintentionally. Yeah. yeah. No, what happened was when Marty saw the footage, the 30, some of the 35 millimeter footage, he said, I think we've got something here, but we have to, we're making a movie. And and we have to know what this is about. So I want to shoot you guys telling stories, telling tales of the road. What is this about? How did we get here? What's happening in this? And and then I said to him, here's something that I feel is missing too, because there was a you know we had all these flavors of music that kind of make up what we're all of what we're all about. But I said, we didn't get to pay honor to gospel music or country music. And I've written a theme, a theme from The Last Waltz. Why don't we shoot those three things on a soundstage so you can move, that, yeah. so you can move the camera the way you move the camera. A different he's, flavor, yeah. He's famous for sure. where, how he moves the camera. So we did that, and that put the icing on the cake. We told the stories, and then he cut it together like it was a movie and not a concert documentary. Now, with him, interesting to me that you didn't do your first solo album until 87. That's true. Why is that? I was doing other things. There was a lot of film projects that people were coming to me with in, in this period. You pretty much immerse yourself in movies. In Marty's movies, you do. After The Last Walls, I went off to do Carney, and Marty went off to do Raging Bull. And you did music for Raging Bull, yep. King of Comedy, Color of Money, then on to uh, Casino, then Crossing Guard, Phenomenon, Any Given Sunday, Gangs of New York. Onto Ladder 49, The Departed, Shutter Island, Wolf of Wall Street. And, and you're asking me, you know, how come you didn't? Right, uh, right, right. Yeah, why, weren't you, yeah. why, aren't, why weren't you doing more the stuff? The solo album. <laughs> well, but no, no, no. But I'm talking about the solo album. But, but my yeah. point is, is that um, when you're doing that kind of work with him, you're doing score or soundtrack or both? All of the above. Right. And every movie. So when he asks you for us, he'll have you write incidental music or a full piece orchestrally or otherwise, or you're writing in, 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 a, in a, another style? Is it orchestral? It's, that's what I'm saying. It's, it's always a different experience. And, and sometimes we just co collaborate on ideas, and I suggest things, and he's, oh, that's good, that's good, okay. Let's put some of this in there. But does that. he come to you and say, in terms of soundtrack, will he say, what's a song, an extant song that's that out there? That can be... He'll say to you, what do you think would play well there? Right. Because he's obsessed with that, obviously. Right. So, but I'm saying that it's the whole gamut right. of different things with music. It's sound. It, it is like, what makes this thing come to life in that way? And it just feels so real, you can't deny it. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if I write it, if I find it, if I, you know, if I disturb it and do something beautiful with it that works for the movie, all good. You were a guy that was like this leading man, good-looking, women were crazy about you, and but you didn't play that. And it was just about the music, man. I hope so. It was, you never lost sight of the fact that really all you cared about was music. Yep. Yep, true enough. The night is over, 
Robbie Robertson and the band influenced everyone from Pink Floyd to Elton John, the latter of whom said in 2011 that the group's first album music from Big Pink changed his life. He's not alone. Here's the thing comes from WNYC Studios. (laughs) 